Welcome to Authors Annotated, a Gwinnett County Public Library podcast where we chat with authors about their work, their creative processes, and their love of libraries. This episode features author Sonia Kamal, author of Unmarriageable, a reimagining of Pride and Prejudice in Contemporary Pakistan from an event at Liberty Books in downtown Lawrenceville, Georgia. Take it away, Sonia. Thank you so much, Gwinnett County and Liberty Books. When I was 14 years old, my Aunt Helen gave me a gorgeous copy of Pride and Prejudice. It was red leather with gold lettering on it. And I actually have it here with me today. Very beautiful, a little <laughs> worn for wear, but still very readable. And she gave this to me. I'm not sure if it was my birthday or what occasion it was, but it's inscribed by my cousins inside. It's a 1978 or 1979 edition or so. So as I said, I was 14 years old and I got this and very pretty, but I looked at how sick it was and I was a little scared. And then I opened it up to the first sentence, which is, as all Jane Austen lovers know, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. I promptly shut the novel. <laughs> I was like, not only is this quite thick, I don't know what is going on in this. Luckily, though, I'd pick it up every so often just to flip through it because my aunt would ask me at some point, did you like it? And I had to say something. And what was inside were these illustrations called color plates. There's this woman standing under a doorway and there are two other ladies and two gentlemen and there's a caption. And I'd always wonder to myself, oh my God, I wonder what she's done because they all, you know, the seated people look a little stunned. And me, myself, was always getting into trouble also. I'd always done something or the other. So I sort of related to the pictures and all the captions. But it wasn't until I was 16 years old. And I don't know what it was about this particular day, but I just opened the novel, read that first sentence, and I just started reading it all the way through until the very end. Now, as soon as I finished reading it, the first thought I had was that this was the most quintessentially Pakistani novel that I had ever read in my life. I mean, Jane Austen had no idea she was Pakistani. <laughs> that Pakistan wasn't even a country that came about in 1947. So it wasn't even a country by then, but she was still Pakistani. And by that, I mean, this is a story about a mother who is desperate for her five unmarried daughters to get married. And as wonderful as that was for me, Austen is a social critique. You know, she writes comedy of manners. All of her books are full of irony, and she really nails human psychology. Yeah. And for me, the humor in it, the satire in it, I mean, these were people I saw all around me all the time. In fact, Mrs. Bennett is my mother. <laughs> Mrs. Bennett is almost every Pakistani mother who is out there. I know as soon as I finished reading it, the first thought I had was, you know, that this is a Pakistani novel. And the second one was that one day I'm going to write a parallel retelling. I'm going to set Pride and Prejudice in Pakistan. Now, I'm not sure why I had this thought exactly. On the one hand, it was a very odd thought. On the other hand, a very fitting thought. But it was an odd thought because I never wanted to be a writer. Writing was something I did, you know, people, you sing in the shower, you don't think you're going to go on and, you know, become an opera star. You doodle, you don't think you're going to paint and have things put up in a museum. And writing was the same way for me. I'd started scribbling stories and just telling stories and stuff when I was eight years old. One of those very annoying kids who would grab all the neighborhood kids, my cousins, my friends, my sister, and say, we're going to do this play today and we're going to do that. And listen to me, I have a story. And everyone always hid from me. No, they didn't. <laughs> they were very happy to indulge me. But, you know, writing was just a hobby, something I just did. I actually wanted to be an actress. And unfortunately, I even got offers as I grew a little older from TV and dramas and stuff. But unfortunately, in my culture, in Pakistani culture, acting was not considered respectable. And I have to say, I have a TEDx talk about the regret that I had because my father didn't want me to do it. And I held a lot of regret that I hadn't been allowed to fulfill a dream of mine. In fact, my mother, who's a doctor, when I was 12 years old, I watched this movie called Umrao Jan. It's an Indian movie. And it's about two women, two little girls, actually, who are kidnapped. And one is of a lighter complexion. One is of a darker complexion. And the lighter complexion one goes on to be married to a Nawab into a wealthy family. And the darker complexion one is sold into prostitution. And the movie, which is based 
based on a real story, follows the prostitute's life. And at the very end, she comes to dance at her home, her childhood home, which she recognizes. And her brother and her mother recognize her. Instead of taking her back, the brother kicks her out, even though the mother wants to take her back in. And something about the story at that age... you know, it was just it just resonated with me. There was something so sad and alluring about the fact that without any fault of her own, she was not in control of her own destiny. She had no agency. And watching that movie, I felt that I wanted to portray roles like that. I wanted to be an actress. Anyway, so my mother came home that day. I told her, you know, really excited that I know what I want to do. And she gave me one slap and she was like, your father is going to die because this was such a taboo thing in our culture at that point. In Muslim culture, it was just not considered respectable. And every time I tell this story, there's always someone or the other who tells me that, you know, about their in America, their mothers who wanted to be flight attendants, or they wanted to go on the stage, or they wanted to be singers, or they wanted a career. And they weren't allowed to because everyone was scared that, you know, if they had agency or they became flight attendants or whatever, they wouldn't go on to become good housewives and good homemakers and good um, mothers and stuff. So I think being denied your dream might be, you know, universal in some respect everywhere. So writing was something I just fell into. I'd been doing it for a long time and it was socially sanctioned. My parents never had an issue with me writing because as much in acting, your entire body and your face is out there. You know, used to be back in the day, some of you might remember that pre-internet, you didn't see authors' faces anywhere at all. I mean, even with books, except for perhaps Barbara Cartland, if anyone remembers Barbara Cartland at the back of her books and her pink frilly dresses, and maybe some of the thriller writers. But otherwise, whatever book you picked up, there'd be a small bio, if even that, and you wouldn't know what the author looked like. So traditionally, it was very okay to write, because even if you bared your soul on the page, no one knew what you looked like. So it was absolutely fine. You were hidden and veiled from view. So I'd always been writing and something I just did had a very resentful relationship to it for the longest time because it was something my parents were okay with. And that's what my TEDx talk is about too. You know, regrets are bad enough, but when they're regrets given to you by your parents or your culture or people saying no to you, you know, it's one thing to try something and fail. It's another thing to never even be allowed to try it. So I fell into writing and writing chose me. In a way. Now, I've had an interesting upbringing. When I was uh, six months old, my family moved to England. When I was nine years old, we moved to Saudi Arabia. When I was 16, we moved back to Pakistan. Then I came out to college. But those years in Saudi Arabia, I went to a British international school. And it was almost going to a mini United Nations. My friends were from everywhere. They were from the African continent. They were from Scandinavia. They were from the US, England, Japan, every country that you can possibly think of. There was representation there, and I absolutely loved it. But the most wonderful thing about this school was the library. Now, had I just remained in Pakistan, which was under the British Empire and is a post-colonial country, and in fact, Pakistan implemented the English education system over there, or had I just stayed in England, I don't know if any of you are familiar with the name Enid Blyton. She's a very prolific British author, especially back in the day. You know, as popular as J.K. Rowling is today, if you were any connection to England, you read her. She had 500 plus books to her name, writing for kindergartners, fantasy series, you know, to teenage and beyond mysteries and boarding school stuff and all sorts of stories. And you basically just grew up on Enid Blyton with a few other authors thrown in. Now, because I was at this school, which was British and American, we had books from all over the world. So I also grew up reading Judy. Bloom and S.C. Hinton's The Outsiders from Canada, Ellen Montgomery, Shirley Jackson's The Lottery, Daphne du Maurier. My friends from India would bring with them what would now be considered uh, graphic novels, these um, comics called Amar Chitrakata. I had friends from Japan, uh, Korea, China, bringing in folk tales and myths, Russian friends bringing in tales about Baba Yaga. We read The Arabian Nights. It was just the most wonderful, wonderful upbringing when it came to books. And even even television. I mean, I grew up watching The Cosby Show, but this I know 
tells my age, but The Cosby <laughs> Show and Punky Brewster, Full House. So, you know, so it was a very eclectic upbringing in terms of pop culture and media, which I would not have gotten had I just grown up in Pakistan or England or even just the U.S. Because there are a lot of, you know, British children and stuff who've grown up there are not. And now that the Internet's here, we all read pretty much the same stuff for the most part. Or we're all exposed to it. But back in the day, no one knew who Judy Bloom might be or who S.E. Hinton was. So, you know, I got this wonderful up upbringing when it came to books and readings. But the one thing that I was lacking, which I find, which I slowly realized, is that there was no book at that time that was written in English and set in Pakistan. Now, the reason that I'm even speaking in English is to do with British Empire, its presence in the Indian subcontinent and colonialism. When the British came, they implemented the English language and English education system. It was a language of opportunity and privilege. And I'm going to read one of my epigraphs over here to give you an idea of how things were implemented. So this is from Thomas Babington Macaulay's Minute on Education, given to British Parliament, a speech in 1835. He says, I have no knowledge of either Sanskrit or Arabic. I have never found one among them, Orientalists, who could deny that a single shelf of a good European library was worth the whole native literature of India and Arabia. The intrinsic superiority of the Western literature. We are free to employ our funds as we choose, that we ought to employ them in teaching what is best worth knowing, that English is better worth knowing than Sanskrit or Arabic that it is possible to make natives of this country thoroughly good English scholars, and that to this end our efforts ought to be directed. We must at present do our best to form a class who may be interpreters between us and the millions whom we govern, a class of persons Indian in blood and colour, but English in tastes, in opinions, in morals and in intellect. To that class we may leave it to refine the vernacular dialects of the country. So the policy was basically to create confused human beings who were perhaps of one skin color and tone, and yet their sensibilities and perhaps their loyalties lay elsewhere. And in fact, in my Seattle launch and reading, the interviewer said that unmarriageable and I were Babington's worst nightmare because, you know, he wanted to create confusion. And instead, I created fusion with unmarriageable and reoriented and reclaimed what was being the reclaimed identity. So the British came, they implemented English, and when they left in 1947, and Pakistan, a sovereign nation, came into being, Pakistan decided to keep English as one of its official languages. So you either grew up in the English medium system, which is your education was in English, or you grew up in an Urdu medium system, another language in Pakistan. And this created a linguistic divide, actually, across the classes, and that's one of the things that is one of the things that is discussed in Unmarriageable also. I happened to grow up in the English medium system and I was a British literature student. So I read all the classics. I read Austen and Thomas Hardy, John Donne, Keats, all of them, and Shakespeare. You can't escape Shakespeare. There's Shakespeare, 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 and more Shakespeare. So when I was 16 years old and I finally read Pride and Prejudice, loved it, thought it was Pakistani, it was perhaps weird for me to think that, okay, now I'm going to one day write this because I didn't want to be a writer. But it was not so weird because what I'd started to also do while I was in while I was in Saudi Arabia in that lovely library reading all these things was that I'd started to automatically remap places and food and things and clothes in all the literature that I was reading. So for instance, if I would read of Anne of Green Gables in PE Island, I would automatically transfer her to somewhere in Pakistan. If I was reading about bonnets, I would think dupattas, you know, or shawls. If I read sandwiches or scones, I would immediately turn them into samosas. So I became very adept at retransferring everything into the culture that I was part of. So it was a bridge between the two worlds that I was reading. So yes, I wasn't a writer, never planned to be a writer, but also I was already doing this. And I wanted to read something that was set in... Pakistan, but was in English. Now, the thing is, like I said, my mother was, is, 
Mrs. Bennett. There was a lot of pressure and there remains a lot of pressure in Pakistan on girls to get married. Pakistan is a contemporary society and it has come a long way. We've had a head of state, Benazir Bhutto, Malala Yousafzai is a Nobel laureate. We've recently had a winner on Chopped, the Food Network. Unfortunately, Fatima Ali, she unfortunately passed away. We have the cricket team, women's cricket team. We have sports players. My own mother's a doctor. We have bankers, lawyers, highly, highly highly accomplished women who can earn their own income and certainly don't need to get married at all. And yet the pressure remains there no matter what you do. When I came out to college in the U.S. and I was a valedictorian and I happened to meet my husband around that same time and my mother came out and any guesses for what excited her more? (laughs) Oh, yeah. The valedictorian was the big thing. No, she was really happy that finally I was going to get married. And this pressure is, you know, the thing is, in a lot of traditional cultures, marriage is very important. It's your gateway to having children. You have to get married to have a relationship. And, you know, a lot of traditional cultures, such as the Jewish culture, Italian, Greek, Russian, a lot of the traditional cultures are still very marriage focused, which is why I think Jane Austen is as universally loved as she is, because everyone can relate to the love stories in her novels and and the fact that these five sisters need to get married. That said, I personally don't really think Jane Austen herself was very interested in the marriage plot per se, or even her love stories. I mean, none of her novels start with her, with, for instance, Pride and Prejudice doesn't start with Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy looking at each other across the room at all. None of her novels do. She is more interested in drawing room hypocrisy, in breaking down social structures, in questioning, keeping up appearances and why this is important and what that does to people. And that was why I fell in love with Austen's work and her novels also. That was my gateway into everywhere I looked, I could see Austin's characters. And there's one part in the novel where my Elizabeth Bennett, Alice, has gone to a wedding. And everywhere she looks, she sees characters from different novels. In fact, her best friend, Charlotte Lucas, calls herself Helena from one of Shakespeare's plays, because Helena is a woman who is finding it difficult to find someone to marry. Now, my favorite character in Austin's, all of Austin's novels is Charlotte Lucas. And for those of you who have read Pride and Prejudice, Charlotte is Elizabeth Bennett's best friend. In Austin's time 200 years ago, she's 27 years old. She's well past her prime. I mean, in Regency England, in Austin's time, women could not work at all. There was except the only way for them to achieve any financial security at all was to get married and to marry well. In Austin's class herself, Austin's mother was from the nobility and her father was a reverend. But the only job Austin could possibly do was that of governess coming from her class. And if any of you have read Emma, then you know exactly Austin's feelings about being a governess. Jane Fairfax in that novel is supposed to be one. And Austin is not happy with that. And neither is Jane Fairfax. Reason being that being a governess puts you in a very in-between space. You were neither a servant, like you weren't a kitchen maid, which would tell you what your place was. But you were neither nobility or part of the aristocracy. You were still an employee. You were still being paid. So you're in a very in-between space space of neither being here nor there. You wouldn't know who to eat with, who to eat your meals with. You wouldn't know where you fit in. It wasn't the most comfortable of things to do. Um, And this was the only career open for women of Austin's class. So getting married was extremely crucial in the Regency period. And if you didn't get married and you had no roof over your head, which is what happened to Austin and her sister and her mother. In fact, if anyone has watched Downton Abbey, the whole series starts on the crux that the elder sister is engaged the fiancé dies on the Titanic and the entire Downton Abbey passes on to a cousin they don't even know. And this is the same thing that, that would have happened to the Bennett sisters in Pride and Prejudice once their father passed away. The entire property, their house Longbourn, would have gone to Mr. Collins, who is not the most dashing hero <laughs> in Austen's work. Um, Jane Austen is 
a very modern writer, I feel, because in all of her novels, all of her heroines say no to some proposal. But in Pride and Prejudice, Elizabeth Bennet says no to two proposals, one by the bumbling fool, Mr. Collins, and one by the bumbling, arrogant Mr. Darcy. And in Austen's time, that was a pretty big deal because once their father died, once Mr. Bennet passed away, the girls would have no way to sustain themselves, a roof over their head, food. They could have literally been out on the street. And in fact, this is something that could have happened to Austen and her sister and her mother herself. When I teach Jane Austen, and in fact, in the first chapter of Unmarriageable, this comes up. My Elizabeth Bennet and Jane Bennet are school teachers. All of my women in Unmarriageable are working women earning their own. But it's set in a classroom. My Elizabeth Bennet is teaching Pride and Prejudice. And one of the students says, oh, poor Jane Austen. She never got married. And and my, my Alice says that, well, actually, a really wealthy man named Harris Bigwither did propose to her one evening. But then the very next morning, Jane said no. And you know, like sometimes when you're asked in quizzes and stuff, what is the one place in history you'd like to be or the one conversation you'd like to hear? For me, it's honestly that overnight, what the hell happened that <laughs> night for her to go from no to her, for her to go from yes to no. And I really want to know what her mother had to say about that. And you know, Austin's sister, Cassandra, was also engaged, but her fiancé was in the Navy and he died abroad of a sickness. So both the sisters never married. Jane said no to her proposals and Cassandra never got married after that. And once their father passed away, they actually did go from house to house to house. And it wasn't until Jane's brother, Edward Knight, who had been adopted by a very wealthy set of relatives, which is why his name changed from Austin to Knight. And he was able to give them chocolate cottage to live in, where Jane wrote a lot of her novels and stuff at the end of her life. So, you know, funnily enough, even though she didn't want to be dependent on a male income and she didn't get married, she nevertheless did need the help of her father and then her brother, which is a very interesting twist about how you gain agency or still keep some sort of independence in a culture or an era or a time period where you don't have many choices. Another thing that always fascinated me about Pride and Prejudice was the role that Mrs. Bennett and Mr. Bennett play in it. Often people think that Mrs. Bennett is the world's worst mother and, you know, she's just worried about one thing and Mr. Bennett is a really good father and Elizabeth and Mr. Bennett are so close. And it, I think, seems that way, especially with the movies, because they sort of play Mrs. Bennett as a caricature. But when you think about it, Mrs. Bennett just wants her daughter Elizabeth to get married to Mr. Collins, who is going to inherit their property. They will have a roof over their head. It's security. And it's Mr. Bennett who makes the startling statement of, oh, no, no, you don't have to marry anyone at all. Or you don't have to marry Mr. Collins, at least, because he's not leaving them much. And he is actually giving his daughter very bad advice when it comes to that. In modern times, of course, we're looking at things through the lens of love. And uh, she's not in love with Mr. Collins, so it makes sense to us. But in practical terms, in practical times, Mr. Bennett and Mrs. Bennett, Mr. Bennett is just as much not a good father as Mrs. Bennett might not have been a good mother. And I really love the whole play about what it means to be a good parent in Pride and Prejudice. And I bought a lot of that up in Unmarriageable also. My favorite character of all of Austen's work is Charlotte Lucas, because I feel that Charlotte Lucas is the one character who, in Pride and Prejudice has complete agency of who she is and what she wants to do. My novel, Unmarriageable, it's not a continuation and it's not an inspiration. An inspired by would be Lydia Bennett and Wickham and when they run off, what to Gretna Green, what happened there, or taking one of the characters and writing a completely different story. And a continuation, a prequel, a sequel would be something like The End of Pride and Prejudice and How Was Elizabeth and Darcy's Marriage? How did it work out after the book finished? My take on Pride and Prejudice is a parallel retelling. And I very consciously use the word parallel because it hits every single plot point. I wanted to, at 16, read a novel set, told in English, set in Pakistan, and I loved Pride and Prejudice, and that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to read Pride and Prejudice set in Pakistani culture and society. So it hits every plot point. But something that always fascinated me, even that first time I read it at 16, was Elizabeth Bennett, as we know, says no to Mr. Collins. And Austin tells us that Charlotte Lucas, Elizabeth's best friend, met, went down to meet Mr. Collins accidentally in the lane. And the very next sentence pretty much is about how 
he proposed and now they're getting married. And I'd always wondered what happened between these two sentences, you know? I mean, did he propose to her the very same way he proposed to her best friend a day back? What happened over here? Another character that fascinated me was Anne de Berg, Catherine de Berg's daughter. She is completely silent in Pride and Prejudice. And I'd always wondered, well, does she ever say anything? And if she does, what does she say? So I wanted to give her a voice also. Um, I wanted to work with the backstories of a lot of the minor characters, the secondary char characters like Anne and Charlotte. So even though it's a parallel retelling and it hits every plot point, and I think it's the only parallel retelling to date, actually, I spruced up the minor characters, their backgrounds. I gave their new characters in Unmarriageable also. Mr. Bennett has his own arc within Brother. But uh, what I loved about Charlotte Lucas and her character was somehow she manages to take agency of her own life. She accidentally meets Mr. Collins in the street. She gets him to somehow propose to her. And then when she tells Elizabeth, Elizabeth is not happy about this. And the most phenomenal thing for me was that usually, you know, when you're making a major life decision and one of your friends says, that's not a good idea, you tend to listen or you tend to pay some attention. But Charlotte Lucas knew what was best for her own life. She didn't come under peer pressure. She didn't let Elizabeth's opinion of Mr. Collins veer her off the path of what she knew was best for her. And I really, really admired that spirit. You know, Charlotte doesn't want to stay a spinster in her own own house, in her father's house. She probably knew she was never going to get a proposal that might have been acceptable or get a proposal at all. And she went out and she seems to have almost in modern times proposed herself. So Austen in herself in her novels and Pride and Prejudice, she was such a modern writer in that way. You know, whatever little bit of agency she could give her characters in whatever little bit of way. I mean, when we think about it, even Lydia takes her life into her own hands and she runs away. Now, thankfully, Mr. Darcy's money is able to get her married off she could have been in a lot of trouble had she come back home unmarried and maybe even, you know, pregnant. But, you know, all of Austin's characters had some agency. And at 16, reading that, those things resonated with me. Her satire resonated with me. Pride and Prejudice does have religion in it. Austin's father was a reverend. And in all of her novels, she has clergymen. Mr. Collins is a clergyman, you know, and um, he's not the most popular hero in the novel. He's a bit self-righteous. She exposed the self-righteousness that comes in religion. And I very much wanted to take that aspect of hers. I mean, mine is a parallel retelling, not just in the plot to plot, but it's also a parallel retelling in other aspects. For instance, the reason I have my Lydia Bennett is named Lady Bennett is because in Austin first started publishing, in her lifetime, she never published under her own name. It wasn't until she passed away and then her brother told everyone who she was. But her first novel was published uh, with by a lady. And I wanted to have that nod over there. My novel, Unmarriage is set in 2000 and 2001 because often one of the uh, big critiques that Austin tends to get, one of the few critiques, is that she didn't bring the larger world events into her novels. She had brothers in the Navy. Her cousin Eliza was married to a French aristocrat who was guillotined. She lived through the Napoleonic Wars. So, you know, a lot of things were happening around her and she was very well aware of them. And in Pride and Prejudice alone, the militia, the army is in town, which is why Lydia and her kiddie, the the two sisters are so excited. They're excited about flirting with the soldiers. So it's not as if Austin avoided it completely, but was not something that she dwelled on. But as we all know, in 2001, a major world event happened. And one of my sections in Unmarriageable ends in August 2001. And I figured a reader would now expect that this major world event was going to be, if not a big part of the book, at least some part of the book. And there is no mention of it. And the reason I did that was to show a contemporary reader how Austen also did not bring in the larger world events into her novels. And I wanted them to have a parallel of that. So I tried to do a lot of parallels, not just the plot by plot parallel. But you know, religion Pakistan is a multi-religious country. Islam is the majority religion, but we have Hindus, Christians. In fact, there's a inter-religious marriage in the novel. My gardeners are Muslim and Christian. They're married. To, and as we know in Austin's novels, gardeners are a very happy, thriving family with kids. In fact, the children that the gardeners have in Unmarriageable are named after my own children. Austin used to name a lot of her characters after her friend, 
like her best friend Anne Sharp or her sister Jane, or, you know, she'd give characters names from, just namesakes from her own life. And I did the same in an isolated incident and in Unmarriageable. So my children show up, my husband is in there, my best friend is there, every, every, I'm there, I'm actually Harris Big Withers' girlfriend. I figured that, you know, Charlotte Lucas marries Elizabeth Bennett. <laughs> Spurn suitor. I'm perfectly happy being the girlfriend of Jane Austen's Spurn suitor in the novel. But you know, I do, one of my scenes is set at the Wagha border between India and Pakistan. So I do bring politics in like that. And religion is, I don't necessarily discuss religion, but the Islamic faith is shown. We have people reading the Quran and we have people praying and marriage comes up in, in terms of divorce, that women have the right to divorce in Islam. So I try to bring in a lot of religion that way, as well as show minority religions also through the gardeners, especially through their relationship, because that's what Pakistan is. I wanted to show, like I said, a Pakistan that I've grown up in, that I've lived in. I went to a convent in Pakistan growing up. I went to another school where we had an American teacher and every assembly she would start with the Lord's Prayer and then we'd say a Muslim prayer. So, you know, it's a very, it's a secular upbringing. But, you know, there are religions in Pakistan. So I wanted to reflect that in the novel as best as I could. I think, of course, minorities can have a tough time in any country and culture as we see here and, and everywhere. And another thing I also wanted to bring up in Unmarriageable was the connection between Eastern and Western literatures, you know, the universalities, the bridge, the way novels or books and stories can mirror each other. This is something that my Elizabeth Bennett and Mr. Darcy discuss a lot about Western literature, Eastern literature. What does it mean when we say a literature belongs to the Western canon or Eastern canon? For instance, I connect A Passage to India by E.M. Forster, who was a British guy with Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird. They have a lot in common. There's Kushvant Singh's Train to Pakistan with John Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath. I do a lot of connections here. Toni Morrison's The Blue eye comes up. One of the characters accidentally calls it the blackest eye. Leslie Marmon Silko's uh, short story Lullaby comes up. And it's a lovely story about Native American children being taken away from their tribes and being sent to boarding schools where they weren't allowed to speak their tribal language and they had to learn English. So once again, the linguistic divides, empire, colonialism, what it means to not have your not have your language or your culture or your identity. So a lot of these things are in there. And religion is one of those aspects that I talk about and bring up too. It's a fun novel. And I've been told it's really funny. In fact, a lot of magazines have called it the funny one. And people tend to laugh when they read it. So I don't mean to make it sound terribly serious, but there is a there is a serious strain in it. In fact, I was really, one of the most thrilling things for me was that this student, Bianca Delgado, wrote an essay for Plowshares about unmarriageable, and she wrote it through the lens of the epigraphs. Epigraphs are the quotes that writers put in the beginning of books, and they're usually guidelines for how to read the books. Most people either skip over them or don't realize their importance. But she took the epigraphs. I have the one I read out from Tom Thomas Babington Macaulay about language. And then I have one from Jane to her sister Cassandra, where she's talking about how Pride and Prejudice is her light, bright and sparkling novel. And that's another thing I wanted to parallel, you know, and she and Jane was worried about whether there was enough shade in it, whether she needed to put more heavy subjects in it. So wrote an essay about Unmarriageable through Right, bright and sparkling and shade and the epigraphs. And that's just wonderful because most people pass over them. And I was so excited when I found that. So yeah, I tried to do a lot with the novel, but it's a fun novel. It's Austin's light, bright and sparkling with shade underneath. And I really wanted to set this novel in modern day contemporary Pakistan, which was actually more of a challenge than I thought it would be. Usually when you write, anything at all. I mean, I've written essays, I've written short stories. You write for yourself. You don't think of the audience. You don't think of who else is going to read this. You just hope that whatever you read is going to resonate with enough people or even one person that they'll pick it up and read it. Now with Pride and Prejudice, I had a very different... I knew that at least there are a group of people, if anyone is familiar, called Jainites. Um, Jainites are avid fans of all things Jane Austen and Pride and Prejudice. And they know they're Jane 
inside out. And what I was planning to do was pretty ambitious because this was a parallel retelling. Like I said, it wasn't an inspiration. It wasn't a continuation. It wasn't something that I thought would be cute to do. This was me reclaiming my identity, reorienting Pride and Prejudice, as well as a parallel. And I thought that there was going to be at least one Jainite, one avid fan of Jane Austen in this entire world who's going to pick up this book that I would like to write, and they're going to have an opinion about it. And that was really intimidating. The other thing I really wanted to do also was write a novel that even if you're not familiar with Jane Austen at all, and you have never read Pride and Prejudice, it would still be a complete book for you. So I wanted to write something that was a completely original novel and it could stand alone. So yes, there was the Jane Austen aspect, but there was also wanting to write an original novel. The other two groups of people who I thought would pick it up and were intimidating also was often it happens that we learn about or we know about different countries from what we see on the news, the news clips, the news blips. I mean, most people, the little they know about Pakistan comes from what they see on the news, which is certainly not a 360 degree picture. I mean, for instance, when I was growing up in Pakistan in the 1980s, I had come to, you know, I'd come to the U.S. before, visited Disneyland, was aware of what America was. But, you know, if you hadn't come, all you'd know about America was probably Baywatch. And, and, and you know, people would think that all of you have red bikinis and are running merrily on the beach all day long. And also soap operas. We would get soap operas like The Bold and Beautiful and Santa Barbara, Dynasty, Dallas. And as we all know, in a lot of these soap operas, people seem to be having a very good time all the time with everyone, it seems. <laughs> so you would have, you know, you'd have a father-in-law hooking up with his daughter-in-law and it would seem that America is the place to go if you want to truly express yourself, which is obviously not the case. But when you just see a country through pop culture or through what you see on the news, you don't get a whole picture of it. So I wanted to write something which would resonate, which was a Pakistan that I had grown up with, an authentic Pakistan, one where girls go out to cafes and have coffee and discuss their mothers who want to marry them off to just about anyone. And, you know, about guys who are good looking and wealthy, but really arrogant. So are they any good? And I know for me, I have to say, one of the things I do bring up in Unmarriageable is the concept of whether it's important to be in love or whether it's important to be in like with whoever you're going to end up with. And that was something that I really wanted to explore in the novel. So the last bunch of people that I was really intimidated by were actual Pakistanis and people from the Indian subcontinent who were, you know, they know their culture. So there were these four balls that I was juggling. There were the Jainites, avid Jane Austen fans. There were people who had never heard of Jane Austen at all and would be coming to Unmarriageable as a complete standalone novel. There were people who knew Pakistan through what they'd seen on the news. And then there were people who were Pakistani and knew it inside out. And I was extremely intimidated by all these. So they were like gargoyles I'd always see with, you know, one or the other saying, you're going to, you won't be able to do it. You won't be able to do it. And then it so happened that my first novel, An Isolated Incident, was having trouble getting published in the U.S. And I decided that I would go back and do my master's and I would go the teaching route. And I joined Georgia State University and my youngest was four at that time. I have three kids and now, right now they're 17, 16 and 10, but he was four at the time. And it was a four-year full-time master's program with a four-hour closed books exa exams at the end, 40 books, four-hour exams, closed book. And it was not fun at all with three kids and with all the other responsibilities that one has. But nowadays, if you plan to teach, you need a master's or at least a PhD. So I forged forth and being a Pakistani, I didn't know that I could quit because there's no such word as quitting in the Indian subcontinent. You just start something and you finish it to the end. An Isolated Incident, my first novel, took me 10 years to write. It's set against the Kashmir conflict. It's about a 19-year-old girl who gets caught up in Kashmir in very sad circumstances. She's gang raped. Her family is murdered. She finds herself passed on from family to family until she ends up in the U.S. at a very distant uncle's house. They have a 19-year-old son who's very idealistic. He's grown up in the U.S. suburbia. His parents are doctors. He's really seen comfort all his life, but he's very idealistic. He believes he's a combination of every Marvel DC comic superhero there is and that, you know, he can 
save world. And of course, these are two 19-year-olds. Things happen, and he goes out into the world to save the world. She's already broken. And the novel is about what it means to have everything and lose it and to have nothing, and how do you find something to live? I've had five agents, literary agents, for it. It wasn't selling in the U.S. There were many editors who said, it's too bad it wasn't the war du jour at that time, Iraq or Afghanistan, and they said Americans wouldn't be interested in reading about this particular piece of geography, which I think is almost a catch-22, because if you don't put something on the shelf... You won't know if anyone's interested in reading it. So it was having a hard time being picked up over here. And it finally got published in India with a small press. And this was five years ago, almost a little more than five years ago. The publishing world has changed a lot in these five years. We have a lot of smaller new presses, which are doing incredibly well, which were not really available back when I was trying to get this published. Now, when I published Isolated Incident in India, I did not even think to have a book launch or anything here because I figured... It's not here. How will I sell it? What will happen? But now people who published in India bring copies of their own over here, sell them. They, they do their book talks. They do everything. My grandfather is a refugee from Kashmir and on pretty much his deathbed. Like I said, I'd always been scribbling and my family thought I was going to be a journalist. So on his pretty much his deathbed, he asked me to write about Kashmir. And it so happened I turned into a novelist. But since I promised him and I wanted to honor that promise... An isolated incident came out of that promise, and it took 10 years, a lot of research involved and stuff. Now, Unmarriageable, on the other hand, was written in two months. As hard as doing a four-year's master's at Georgia State was, and I got funding and a scholarship, so quitting was just not in my vocabulary. I finished the exams, and usually after your coursework, with a creative writing degree, you have to deliver a novel or short stories. I finish my coursework and usually you have a year to two years to work on your novel or your short stories. It so happened there was a glitch in the syllabus and I had two months. And this was dead smack. I had my TEDx talk in the middle too. And if anyone knows anything about TEDx or TED Talks, you have to memorize those talks. So here I was having to write a novel and having to memorize that. And somehow I just managed to forge through. And I actually, we talk about a cloud and silver lining. For me, it turned out to be all silver and the cloud was the lining because like I said, I was so intimidated to tackle Pride and Prejudice, to take this beloved classic. And I'll go as far as to say, not just a beloved classic, world classic, but perhaps the most beloved world classic. Sorry, Shakespeare and Shaw. Sorry, Dickens. But, you know, Austin and Pride and Prejudice seem to have won at this point, you know, and to reorient it and to take it and set it in a different culture. I was really intimidated. Those two months, I had to deliver a thesis. I didn't have time to think of Jainites and standalones or Pakistanis, non-Pakistanis, anyone at all. I just put on, focused completely on the task at hand. And I thought that I would, you know, write something and it would be a bit of a messy draft. And, you know, first drafts tend to be. I delivered it on deadline. The syllabus also said you have to give in 80,000 words. So I wrote 80,000 words. I turned them in. My family and I, we all went out for dinner, celebrated. Yay, I'm done. A week later, I get an email from one of my professors saying, I turned in 80,000 words, half the novel. And he was like, where's the rest? And I was like, what do you mean, where's the rest? And he was like, yeah, you have to deliver an entire novel, which is when we realized that, oh, my God. And I just... I managed to write another 80,000 words and finish the entire novel. So what I basically wrote in two months was 160,000 words. I actually became quite ill by the end of it. I don't know how I did it, but I turned it in and it should have been a mess. And instead, my professors wrote back and they said, send it on to your literary agent. And I sent it on and it sold within a few days. And so the great big silver in this, in this cloud was that I was able to do what I call my dream novel because from 16 to have that little root of an idea that one day I'm going to do this and then to finally see it 
happened to finally write it, despite all the people I was intimidated by, despite my own qualms of whether I would be able to write Pride and Prejudice through a feminist lens, through a post-colonial lens, and yet keep the humor and the irony. And I hope I was able to achieve that and be true to Austin's spirit also. And along the way, those two months, I didn't have time to, you know, I had thought I would have a year, two years. I was going to leisurely make myself cups of tea and try every cookie in the universe and reread Pride and Prejudice and make notes. And I had no time at all to do any of that. What I did do, the only little bit of a break I gave myself was I asked my best friend, Shika, who was a poet, and my niece, who was 21 at the time, and my sister-in-law in Pakistan, my niece and sister-in-law. And I was like, I'm going to send you. I have to write this novel. I don't have any time. I'm going to be sending you these really long emails every day. And just tell me if you think they're any good. Oh, it's a story. It's a novel. Just tell me if you think it's making sense even. Now, my best friend, who is a writer herself, she immediately knew what she was getting into. So she was like, okay. <laughs> but the other two were like, oh, yeah, send it along. And I think the first couple of emails, because I would literally send like 5,000 to 8,000 words or something in that mark figure per day. And I think the first couple of emails, they were all like, what the hell did we just get ourselves into? But I knew I had something there when I think 10 days or so into this, I got the emails from them back to back and each of them was like, where's the rest? Where's the next chapter? And I was like, oh, I haven't written the next chapter yet. They were so interested and invested after a while. And they talk about the characters if they're real people. And that was very encouraging to me too, because I knew that, okay, I wasn't making a complete mess of what I was trying to do here. And I guess it was meant to be. I'm going to read the beginning of Unmarriageable. Part one, December 2000, chapter one. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a girl can go from pauper to princess or princess to pauper in the mere seconds it takes for her to accept a proposal. When Elizabeth Binnett began working at age 20 as the English literature teacher at the British School of Dilipabad, she had thought it would be a temporary solution to the sudden turn of fortune that had seen Mr. Burkett Bark Binnett and Mrs. Hushbu Pinky Binnett and their five daughters, Janisba, Elizabeth, Marisba, Kitiyara and Lady, move from big city Lahore to backward Dilipabad. But here she was, 10 years later, 30 years old, and still in the job she'd grown to love, despite his challenges. Her new batch of ninth graders was starting Pride and Prejudice, and their first homework had been to rewrite the opening sentence of Jane Austen's novel, always a fun activity and a good way for her to get to know her students better. After Alice took attendance, she opened a fresh box of multicolored chalks and invited the girls to share their sentences on the blackboard. The first to jump up was Rose Nama, a crusader for duty and decorum, and one of the more trying students. Rose Nama deliberately bypassed the coloured chalks for a plain white one, and Alice braced herself for a reimagined sentence exhorting a traditional life, marriage, children, death. As soon as Rose Nama ended with mere seconds it takes for her to accept a proposal, the class erupted into cheers, for it was true. A ring did possess magical powers to transform into pauper or princess. Rosnama gave a curtsy and, glancing defiantly at Alice, returned to her desk. Good job, Alice said. Who wants to go next? As hands shot up, she looked affectionately at the girls at their wooden desks, their winter uniforms impeccably washed and pressed by dhobis and maids, their long braids, for good girls did not get a boyish cut like Alice, draped over their books, and she wondered who they'd end up becoming by the end of high school. She recalled herself at their age, an eager to learn, though ultimately naive Miss Know-it-all. Miss Alice, me, 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 the class clown said, pumping her hand energetically. Alice nodded, and the girls selected a blue chalk and began to write. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a young girl in possession of a pretty face, a fair complexion, a slim figure, and good height is not going to happily settle for a very ugly husband if he doesn't have enough money unless she has the most incredible bad luck, which my cousin does. So one of the other blessings that came with finally writing Unmarriageable was when it sold to Penguin Random House. It takes, you know, you sell a novel and then it takes at least a year to two years for it to come on the shelves. 
by the time they do the cover, the editing, the line editing, I was lucky in that there wasn't a lot of structural editing that we had to do. What we did have to do, though, was because, like I said, I, I delivered 160,000 words. Usually books are 300 pages or so. I delivered a 600-page book. So it was double this in those two months. And what I wanted to do for myself also was power it down and just make it a regular size. So in edits, what I had to work on was deciding what to pare down. And a lot of the post-colonial discussions did get cut. A lot of the descriptions of Pakistan and the places that the characters go, those got cut too. That was a challenge. I mean, for some writers, it's a challenge. Adding words is a challenge. For me, cutting words down seems to be the big challenge. My editor has been amazing. I was a little scared, given that there's a wedding in this novel. There's so much that could be exotified in Unmarriageable. And never once was I made to feel that I needed to do this or I needed to say this or I needed to spruce up, you know, anything of the sort. Everything in the novel is what I wanted to keep. There is only one thing that I regret editing out. Unmarriageable is set in a fictitious town, Dilipabad. I gave myself that break also. I was like, I don't have time to go back to Pakistan, research a real. So my Bennets are, I live in this fictitious town, Dilipabad, which is a composite perhaps of every small town everywhere. And I had a origin history of the name of how that town got to be Dilipabad because Dilip is a Hindu name. And this is, and the town wanted to change their name from the British name that the British Empire had given it. And they wanted to Islamicize the name, but they ended up in Dilipabad. So I'd given a whole history of how this happened, how this town became Dilipabad. And unfortunately, I chose to edit it out because I thought it was impeding the pacing. And now I'm like, dash it. But, uh, you know, I hope to hopefully publish it somewhere or the other. So when it sold, my literary agent asked if I wanted to do the audio version. The audio sold and he asked if I wanted to do it. And I said, absolutely not. You know, I mean, I'm not an actress, let alone, I mean, with acting, at least you have your facial expressions, you have your body. With audio, it's just your voice. You need vocal training. And I don't come from that background. So I was like, absolutely not. And I'm really looking forward to see who they choose to narrate the novel. A year and a half later, a week before we were supposed to be in studio, I got an email from Linda Korn, the executive producer at Penguin Random House. And she said that, you know, I've watched your TEDx talk and I think you can do this. And I was like, well, that's really nice of you but I don't want to do this. Again, I told her I'm not an actress. And she said, you know what? And she said something then that really, really touched my heart. I hadn't thought of it. And she said, you know what? Imagine this is the dream that you weren't allowed to fulfill, your dream of acting and your reality, which is writing. And it's bringing the two together. And you know, the fusion of that, which is what Unmarriageable and Pride and Prejudice also is the fusion of the English language I grew up in and the culture that I grew up in. And something about her bringing those two aspects of my life together too really touched me. And I was like, okay, I'll give it a try. I mean, I figured what's the worst they can do? I'll go into studio, they'll hold me for two minutes and they'll kick me out. But you know, you have to give a bit of a tape, you have to do some audition and send it in. So I found myself in the studio. It was 10 hours a little more of recording, one take, and it was the biggest. I loved it. I loved it. It was such a gift. I was a little sad after that because I figured, you know, if I could have done this just vocal, I could have, as Marlon Brando says in his movie On the Waterfront, I could have been a contender maybe with acting too. But, you know, just to be able to have done this, to have gone into it, taken a bit of a dream I had and combined it with the writing and stuff. But it was four days, 10 hours. It's really tough. I don't know if I'd want to do it again. But you know, so far this journey has been just really, really wonderful. And I'm so happy it's culminated in my love of Austin, my being able to reorient and reclaim identity, a post-colonial identity, and set Pride and Prejudice in Pakistan. I have to say, I'm a little spoiled now, having written one book in 10 years, one novel in 10 years, and another in two months. I prefer the two months. So now I expect to just sit down and just scribble everything. In fact, two months is too much. I want to just write a novel in a month and a half and have it be good to go. That's my new intimidation. So we'll see what happens with that. Thank you so much, Liberty Books. Thank you to Gwinnett County, to Denise, to everyone who invited me here. I'm on Facebook, 
author page. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. You're welcome to friend me on any of these mediums. And if you like the book, any, yes, no, if you like the book, then please do leave reviews on Amazon and Goodreads. All of us authors really, really appreciate, even if it's just the stars, when you go that extra step, if you've liked our work, to please do that. So thank you so much. Thanks again for listening to Authors Annotated, a podcast from Gwinnett County Public Library about authors, their work, their creative processes, and their love of libraries. And thanks again to Sonia Kamal for the great conversation. You can find out more about the library's podcasts at gwinnettpl.org slash podcasts or follow them in your podcast app of choice. Thanks for listening. Connect, learn, and grow with your Gwinnett County Public Library.